Okay, well, uh, welcome, um, ladies and gentlemen, for this um, very fine uh, summer's morning. Um, just, uh, I'm Evan Parker, I'm a trustee of the, uh, of the Conway Hall Ethical Society, uh, and it's that organisation which is uh, organising uh, the meeting this morning. Um, quick bit of housekeeping, fire exits are the way you come in, and also there's one in that direction as well there. Onto Theobald's Road. We're not planning any uh, any fire alarm practice, so that should be okay. Uh, we're filming this event, so uh, be careful what you say. Uh, but having said that, I really want a very vibrant meeting this morning. That's for sure. Um, we're here to consider Brexit. Yeah, being considered by essentially every man and his dog since this. Uh, Incredible result uh, from the referendum about four weeks ago. Many uh, institutions and organisations have, uh, have looked at this. Uh, we've left it to about now in the hope that a little bit of dust just may have settled, but far from it. We think it's uh, still a hell of a lot, a long distance to go. There's one of our panelists there who's probably given him a job for the rest of his, uh, his academic career. Um, we're going to say a slightly mature look and also uh, a, a, a more radical assessment. This institute values its, uh, its uh, history in, in radical thinking, and so I've asked all speakers to, uh, if they have any radical thoughts in this area, to share them with you uh, when they talk about this and when they respond to your questions. Uh, the format today is I'm going to invite each panel member. Um, uh, to come up here and talk for a maximum of eight minutes on their thinking with Brexit. Uh, I might then ask them a few questions, but only a few questions because I'm not an expert in this area for sure. Um, and then we'll throw it open to the floor. And uh, as I said, I'm hoping for some great questions. And I've watched everything that's been said on Brexit on the internet. I mean, you know, so far I've given about five out of ten. I hope today we can take that average up to nearer uh, 9 out of 10 at least. Um, we're trying to avoid the use of microphones, and so uh, and I've asked all the speakers that they can, uh, they're two of the lecturers, so they're very used to standing up in front of audiences and projecting their voice. So I don't think we should have any trouble. Um, they'll come up and stand up. Uh, in general, I think when the uh, questions, uh, the audience, audience gets involved, I think they'll probably remain seated. Not ideal. If they feel like standing up and you speak, that's, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, so everyone can see. Um, so let me uh, first introduce our uh, expert panel. Uh, at the far end, we've got Dr. Simon Usherwood uh, from the University of Surrey. He's a senior lecturer in politics there. He's worked in the EU, done a lot of background study in this area. Uh, and as I understand it, he is particularly interested in Euroscepticism, if I get that right. Uh, then we have uh, uh, Dr. Joseph Lacey from uh, University of Oxford. His uh, expertise is really in studying EU integration and democracy. Uh, and then we have here, at the end of this, 
because Lucy, uh, the MEP, is not here, but I, I've heard nothing from her, but she's promised to come, so she may well arrive later on. Uh, then we have our very own polymath, uh, Norman Backrack. Uh, and you'd expect nothing less from someone who's trained as a physicist uh, to be such so disposed. Um, before we start, uh, can I just take a, a, a vote, uh, if you're happy with that, uh, indicating whether you are for Brexit or against Brexit. So have you voted uh, in, the, in the referendum? Who voted for Brexit? Okay, and I assume the remainder voted uh, for remainder.
this country wanted to be, what kind of society we wanted to have. Were we engaging with the world? Were we retreating? Were we trying to promote certain values? Were there certain uh, agendas that we wanted to push? We didn't really have any of that. Instead, we had the, the Dave and Boris show. You know, who's got the, the best one-liners in a, a TV debate? And as long as we don't have a public debate about what we want to be, what kind of country we want to have, then the whole debate around Brexit is at best incomplete and at worst a distraction. So if we think about that, this really matters now because at the point where we are, where we're talking about uh, renegotiating, not renegotiating, negotiating the terms of leaving the European Union, negotiating the terms of whatever relationship we want to have with that European Union, how can we do that if we don't know what we want? You know, we start off with uh, the kind of thing that I've seen uh, repeatedly over the last six months. Who wants to stay? Who wants to leave? What we never have is why do you want to stay? Why do you want to leave? You know, we set up in the referendum a false division between the two camps. Oh, you're in that camp. I'm in that camp. Oh, we must disagree fundamentally on something. How many of you talked to people who had who were going to vote the way? How many, of you, so how many of those who were voting to leave talked to people who were going to remain? How many people who were going to remain talked to people who leave? Okay, okay. <laughs> Did you talk to people about your choices, about why you were voting the way you were working? I Okay. What we didn't have, though, was a debate that came out of that, that actually the reasons for leaving the reasons for remaining were very diverse and often overlapped. So membership of the European Union in of itself is not the answer to a problem. It is not the solution to uh, our woes. It's simply an aspect of achieving the broader social uh, aims that we have as a country. Now that matters because where we are now in this uh, debate about Article 50, about negotiating those terms, we have to remember that it's not actually for the UK to decide. What we primarily will decide in the Article 50 debate is, do we accept the deal that the other member states of the European Union will offer us? That's the way I'm happy to answer questions about that as we go through this discussion. But the structure of the terms of leaving is very much in favour of those who remain. That they make an offer, and then it's for the state that is leaving to decide, is that acceptable? Do you take the deal on the table, or do you walk away with nothing? That's not meant to be favourable to the state that's leaving, uh, what I hope are fairly obvious uh, kinds of reasons. So already by having uh, that system in place, we set up a problem of uh, trying to determine you know, what's the best way to achieve what we want. Even if we now know what we want, and I think it's very clear that we don't know what we want, we're going to have real difficulty in convincing anybody else 
that we should have what we want. If we think about the development of the relationship between the EU and the UK over the historical uh, span, it's always been like this. It's always been about muddling through, making it up as we go along. Now, you look like a group of people who follow the news, read the newspapers, you'll have seen reports today saying that perhaps we can have a new deal on restricting free movement uh, for seven-year periods. We've had people in the last couple of days saying that the UK should stay in the security arrangements, the military operations. We're ending up where we're saying, well, we want to stay in all these things, we want to do all these things, but we don't want to have the costs or the uh, downsides of doing that. Now, uh, it may be that a deal is possible. I genuinely don't know whether a deal is possible. But what's clear is that that deal, as it stands, is not going to be one that is thought through, that is not conceived in the round, and is not part of a broader sense of where the UK is heading. So, as my time starts to come to an end, I'm going to go back to close. I'm going to go to the gentleman with the hat over there. He's got his another Europe is possible. Do you want to stand up? Show people your t-shirt. Another Europe is possible. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes, the deal I think is not the one I was going to go for. It's more the t-shirt. Another Europe is possible. That's a refrain you've heard in many parts of the EU. You don't actually hear it so much here in the UK. Making things possible is one thing. But to know how we get to another Europe, another UK, we need to have a sense of what that other Europe and that other UK looks like. And discussions like this are a starting point. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.
elites could emerge and significantly change the major bargaining positions on Brexit negotiations. Now, that's pretty speculative and unlikely, but the point is that a lot can change over the course of two or three years, potentially very volatile few years for the EU. So, buying time is the best strategy for the government right now. And as things stand, the UK's bargaining position with regards to both the EU and the rest of the world isn't all at all as bad as some tried to make out during the referendum campaign. So, the UK is a major importer of goods from several European countries, especially Germany, so there's incentives for EU countries to make some concessions in any trade deal. I don't think they would just offer it, offer the deal, they take it or leave it. There is definitely going to be negotiations because the UK does have some leverage. Also, when the Leave campaign drew up a picture of the UK as a kind of you know James Bond of world trade, it's kind of like a global and flexible agent playing by its own rules to suit itself. It doesn't now seem to have been playing painting an entirely false picture. The US has made it clear that it won't leave the UK out in the cold. Austria is rushing to do a trade deal. Meanwhile, the UK isn't the only one that's under pressure to include deals. So to take one example, the members of the South American trading bloc, Mercosur, they're trying to compete with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and are very keen to do trade with the UK. So what are the options with regard to Europe? Um, the UK could join the European Economic Area, like Norway, but this would be democratically dishonest. It wouldn't achieve the kind of restrictions on free movement or the kind of reduction in rule imposition from Brussels that a vote to leave the EU implies. So Switzerland rejected joining the European Economic Area in 1992. But since then, its government has been pursuing dozens of bilateral treaties with the EU that effectively bring Switzerland close to EEA membership. And this has created a tense atmosphere in Swiss politics over the last decade, decade. Those who voted against EEA membership feel that they've been cheated, brought in by the back door. The populist and xenophobic Swiss People's Party capitalized on this sentiment and is now the biggest party there. And in 2014, the party provoked a referendum where the Swiss rejected free movement with the EU. And if the government has to enforce this vote by 2017, all bilateral treaties between Switzerland and the EU are at risk of being called off. So that's the kind of situation the UK should avoid. Any agreement that makes with the EU should not be seen as circumventing the intention of the Brexit vote. It might be tempting for those uh, like me who voted and remain to advocate a subtle circumvention of the vote in some way, but this kind of thing will come back to haunt the UK in the end, some way or another, whether through another destabilizing referendum or in the future by fueling populist parties. Others have pointed towards the Canadian and Turkish model, where there's free trade of goods but no free movement. And the problem is that these trade deals don't cover services, which make up about 80% of the UK economy. So there's no blueprint out there that fits the UK. Any decent trade deal is going to have to be a unique British model. But just to change tack a little bit, I mean, we're, we're behaving like there's only one version of problem to be solved. Um, so right now, the government and most observers they're asking only this. How can we best continue business as usual in a globalizing world after Brexit? Now, the government might be right to ask that question, but if the UK is to make a success of itself in the new world it's chosen for itself, it must also ask another question. How can we spread the benefits of globalization more evenly and protect the vulnerable from its drawbacks? 
In other words, how can we improve the situation of the working poor, the squeezed middle, and the pressed regions of the UK? So in my view, the vote to leave the EU was a warning signal made, that made apparent the level of anger and the feeling of being, quote, a second-class citizen in my own country as one form of mining order in my own country. Unless the problem, the problem motivating such sentiments are addressed, there's no global strategy that the UK can successfully achieve. When you feel that you're being left behind by your society, as that society continues to open its arms to the world, there's no such thing as an acceptable level of immigration from the EU or elsewhere. It will always be too much immigration. There's no agreement with the EU that's acceptable because too much will always have been conceded. And my great fear for Britain is not whether it can get good trade deals, but whether it can ensure that the benefits will be felt across a much wider spectrum of society. So failure to do this, and, and I worry about the in which the energies of discontent might be taken in the future. Who's going to be the next Nigel Farage, and what will be his values? And let's just say that I hope Donald Trump doesn't have a British vote. So, to sum it up, uh, buying time is a good thing. The British bargaining position is not so bad, and it's even better than expected, I think. Any deal between the EU and UK will need to be a unique one, and any future global strategy must be accompanied by major steps towards a more just society. Serious 
problem with the EU, and although we are trying to, the government is trying to reduce them, being out of the EU, it seems to me, gives this country the opportunity where it wants to subsidise very poor farmers in difficult conditions, it can do so, but it can put on caps and make it uh, far more fair. That's just one, one item uh, which occurred to me at the time. So, um, the other point is, why am I generally against the uh, EU? It basically was conceived after World War II uh, as a coal and up steel community between France and Germany and Belgium and so on. That was very good, possibly. But on the whole, it's always favoured free enterprise and against public enterprise. Now, it may be that if you are intrinsically someone who is against any form of public enterprise or extension of public enterprise, that doesn't bother you at all. But its basic ethos has always been in favour of against public enterprise, shall we say, except in these exceptions of substance. So that's one reason why I, who tend to be on the left side of the political spectrum, have tended to be against it. I also think that um, so many people in the Labour Party, in the right wing of the Labour Party, or in fact the two-thirds, the majority anti-Corbynite Labour Party, they're all, on the whole, favour of remaining. Why should this be? Why don't they want to be free to uh, operate any kind of economic policy if they became the government? Well, I think it's a case of liking to be in the EU, because that would make it almost impossible for them to do further nationalisation, further public enterprise. And they're quite happy with that situation. They can say it's against EU rules. So this is my rather cynical version of why the uh, right wing of the Labour Party are for remain and people like Corbyn was very quiet and really possibly uh, not all that in favour of it. Can you hear what I'm saying? Uh, uh, right. Uh, another point, another aspect of EU policy is its policy on tariffs. Um, it has a very aggressive policy of tariffs with regard to other countries in the world. So, for example, there are many countries, for example, Africa, which produces coffee and, uh, and chocolate, and, uh, sorry, coffee and, okay, sorry. And uh, the problem is, you would expect that these countries which produce these incredibly valuable primary commodities would also have Extent, uh, ways of developing those products into readily saleable products to the Western world. But the tariff situation, which applies by the, uh, by the EU to these countries, makes it virtually impossible for this to happen. And the result is that all the highly profitable extra work done on these products, for example, turning raw coffee into something else, or making chocolate, is done by Belgium and Germany and other countries, which reap enormous profits. So I think that another aspect of EU policy which I disagree with is its very aggressive policy to, for, towards the so-called developing countries of the world and their ability to, uh, if they try to make extra value for their products, there are all kinds of tariffs which make it prohibitively impossible. So this is a reason why I, one another reason I am 
against the EU. Uh, it's very difficult to change the basic ethos and the basic rules of the EU. You've got to get this um, majority of 28 or perhaps now 27 countries, and it's very difficult to do that. We elect MEPs, but the MEPs don't actually have the power to initiate legislation. I think they can comment on it or something. The, there's something called the Commission, which seems to be the one that drives the policy. So I don't think it's as democratic as it's supposed to be. It's not like a big House of Commons. Uh, moving to another aspect, uh, immigration has always been talked about. Uh, well, we are not in the Schengen, the UK is not in the Schengen agreement, which the rest of the European is, uh, which is and also nor is Ireland, uh, Southern Ireland, the independent state. This means that the UK and Ireland can agree between themselves about immigration to Great Britain and Ireland, and there's no need for a border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, as some people have suggested, because Ireland is technically in the EU and Northern Ireland is not in the EU. And this, so this means we can, don't have to have a fixed border between those two countries, and we can determine immigration between Britain and Ireland ourselves with the Irish people. Also, if we're out of the EU, we can determine exactly who from the rest of the world we have as immigration, uh, immigrants. Now, there are immigrants from all over the world, not just the EU. All sorts of ex-Commonwealth countries have people who would very much like to come to this country. If we are an independent of the EU, we can totally determine exactly who we accept from all these Commonwealth countries and other countries of the world. So I think we are free to determine our immigration policy in a perfectly fair and better way than currently applies. Right, another aspect of something... Are you the speaker? No. Sorry, just asking. Uh, I'll carry on for a minute. Another, another thing which we have fortunately escaped in the nick of time by leaving the EU. And that is something called the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. What that means is that the United States desperately wants to have an agreement with the EU. It's been negotiating in secret this trade agreement with the EU. This agreement is a very complicated document. But what it amounts to is that, putting it again in very crude terms, it's very much in favour of private enterprise. It means that a private firm which claims that a government is doing something which might reduce its profits, that government can, that company can sue the government. There was an example of that actually uh, a few years ago because Germany decided to cancel all its nuclear power stations. Uh, I don't think it was a good policy, but it decided to do that. This meant that all kinds of contracts it had with other countries, for example, Sweden, to import various technical matters to do with the nuclear power station, these contracts were no doubt cancelled. So um, a country like a firm in Sweden then decided to sue the German government because it was going to lose some of its potential profits 
by this cancellation of the nuclear power station. So we had this weird situation that a country couldn't determine its own, in this case, energy policy without risking, oh, if we cancel this project or something, and this particular firm that was interested will uh, suffer a diminution of profits, they will sue us and get us involved in a long legal round. <coughs> right, we, as part of the EU, would have been part of this TTIP agreement in the year or two when it became established. Because we had voted for Brexit, we are no longer part of that necessarily. We can choose to uh, negotiate, if we wish to, an agreement with the United States, but we're not bound by the TTIP. So there is no danger, for example, this is one of the dangers mentioned. In I'm going to add, well, we'll be back up very soon. Just to wrap up this final example, there are pharmaceutical companies which sell their products to the National Health Service. Sometimes, if it's the only company that's making a particular product, it can double, it can increase the price tenfold, and the NHS has no alternative but to buy it. And supposing a far more uh, different sort of government took power and decided it didn't like that policy, it either wanted to nationalise the pharmaceutical company or otherwise do something which would reduce its profits. Well, it's quite possible that under TTIP, the pharmaceutical company could sue the government. So that's one example. So, so final sentence. I'm pleased that we're free in this country to determine our own policy on economic matters. Thank you, for very interesting uh, inputs. Um, just before we uh, involve the audience, uh, let me remind you that you are in a minority in the country. You are in a minority. Most people want Brexit. By, by a significant majority. No, most of those who voted want Brexit. Yeah, well, but that is as way our system works. Most people want Brexit. I mean, most of the people who, who, who are for Remain in this, in this audience. You used to have a roving mind. Well, I do have, yes. But I've been trying to avoid it because it has all sorts of complications. Um, can I, just before we do that, can I ask the panel, um, what is the overarching, if you had to come up with one reason for remaining in the EU, what is it? The one overarching reason. You have to hold oh, your ear your mouth. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One overarching reason for the microphone at all. Yes, okay. One overarching reason why we should remain in the EU. Simon. Okay. Um, it's a silly question, with all due respect, which like some because we're leaving the EU. Okay, if I'm going to give one reason why I think being in the EU is a, a, a good thing, which actually comes back to the points that Norman's making. Even if you accept all of those criticisms of the EU, leaving the EU doesn't mean that the EU disappears. It doesn't mean that the problems have gone away. It merely means that now the UK doesn't have the ability to shape 
an influence in the way that it did as a member. How much is shaping the influence the UK has so far? Okay, so let me, okay, let me give you an example of how much influence the UK has had. So no one's talked about how the EU looks very free market uh, orientated. Now, you will remember that famous pro-European Margaret Thatcher. Yes? Yes? You remember how pro-European she was? How much she loved European integration? Yes? No, 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 she said. Margaret Thatcher was actually, she wasn't as sceptic as we might think she was. She was actually very pragmatic. Now, uh, those of you with longer memories will uh, recall that back in 1988 she gave a speech in Bruges, Bruges speech, which at the time was completely shocking to polite European society. She talked about changing the direction of European integration, making the European Union look different. And she set out a number of principles. She talked about a security architecture that was led by NATO, not by the European Union. She talked about deregulation. She talked about enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe. Now, at the time, all of those were very controversial things. And yet, if we look at the EU today, the EU actually looks a lot like the EU that Margaret Thatcher was talking about. Now, uh, agricultural subsidies are a great example of that. Yes, the system back in the 1970s was atrocious. It was all about production, so the more you produce, the more money you got. Now, over time, we've gone to a less atrocious system. It's still not brilliant. But instead of rewarding farmers for producing more, instead it's based on how much land they have, which is why money tends to go to richer farm owners, uh, because they have the more, more land. But you've broken the connection between production and subsidy, which was leading to overproduction. Now, the UK was a key part of pushing other member states very slowly, very gradually towards that. Now, that's not a success, but it's better than it was. And I think that's actually the reason why the UK would have benefited from staying in the EU. Not because it would always get what it wants, but because it would have the chance of getting some of what it wants. Whereas now, as it leaves, when it leaves, it will not have that influence that it had before. Okay, Joseph. Um, yeah, I agree with uh, a lot of what Simon said, and what, what I would say is um, is maybe even an extension, slight extension of what Simon said, and it's that I think one of the problems is that the debate is framed very much like just the EU over here, and then when we leave the EU, we're going to be over here, and then you know we'll, we'll cooperate a little bit with these guys. The fact is that the UK, leaving the EU, is going to have negative impacts on the EU. What happens in the EU will have cyclical negative impacts on the UK and vice versa. So it's a false, it's a false idea to think that it's, that it's, it's kind of a, it's a separation. It's just a changing of the terms of cooperation. And I think it's a, it's a changing of the, of the terms of cooperation for the worse. And this is one of the main reasons why, why I think okay. why it's to stay. No, but do you have a comment? If, if you really had to stay in the EU, what would be the, the main reason in your mind? <laughs> I don't know, but I just want to say one thing, which I didn't have time to say. That is that um, one of the plans is for the EU to have its own army, which is uh, a thing that's going to creep along, because there already is basic regulations that it's got to prepare for security and other words which you can't amount to an army. I'm not 
not sure that we should be part of a European army. So this is we one a very good reason why. Um, uh, now, I know, I know Simon, you're, you would no doubt say if we were there, we would argue against it. But if we're not there, we don't need to argue against it. We can, we just not part of it. Just to, to come back on that, we're part of the European army. It's called NATO. Yeah. When was the last time you heard someone saying, I haven't had a vote about NATO? What did you ever hear anyone say, we should have had a referendum about NATO? It's been, it's been, what's, how many, it's been 60 years, 70 years, since the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I can remember the date it was signed, because it was my birthday, but not the year. Um, we never, I, I, there's a parity issue here. We've talked about, once in a generation, we should have the chance to have our say about membership of the EU. We never have that debate about anything else. We never had a debate about, this, you know, about the social system, the welfare state. We never had it about NATO. We never had it about any other international organisation. So, I don't think referendums are the right way to do this, but if we're going to do it, then why don't we do it more broadly? Okay. Um, before, uh, let me uh, now invite the audience to come in. Uh, right about two minutes per, per submission, please, so I should invite you to, to ask the question. You, you can also present a view if you wish, but please try and direct a question to the panel members. That would be greatly appreciated. And if the panel members also can keep their, their answers relatively short, so a lot of people can get uh, their questions answered. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, <coughs> you stand up nice and loud if possible. Um, we were told, right. Um, we were told that the Brexit vote was advisory. Presumably there are some good reasons for that. Why is it that everyone is talking about the result as though it's mandatory? including all the speakers here, including all politicians of all political parties, why doesn't somebody show some leadership and say that advisory means advisory and, and, and there is some good, might be some good reason for that? That was precisely my parliamentary petition which was rejected. It's <laughs> me again. Hello. Um, yes, clearly, constitutionally, this is an advisory vote. There are no binding referendums under uh, British constitutional practice because we have a system of parliamentary sovereignty, so Parliament cannot be bound. Uh, by the same token, though, uh, the whole basis of EU membership is not constitutional because the 1972 European Communities Act binds that Parliament and all future Parliaments to the subsequent decisions made under European law. Now, I make that point just to say that, uh, firstly, the British constitutional settlement is not very settled, and secondly, in practice, can we imagine a parliament, regardless of its own views, passing a piece of legislation to say we should have a referendum, having that referendum, which was on, we must remember, on a very high turnout, 70% plus, Yes, it wasn't a huge majority, but it was still a majority, and there was no uh, requirement threshold specified on that. So under the terms of the legislation that Parliament passed, can it now reasonably, let alone constitutionally, say, thank you very much, we're not going to take uh, notice of that, or we're going to do our own thing? America so, would. America would. Well, America 
wouldn't hold a referendum in the first place, uh, yeah. which is a difference. Uh, yeah. Now, again, we can have a little discussion uh, about whether referendums are a good way to decide this at all, but uh, you know, the, the facts of the situation are that we've had a vote, and politically, uh, more than anything else, it's, I, I think it's inconceivable to overturn that decision at least without going back to the people. You know, if you remember the, the constitutional treaty back in the early 2000s when uh, Tony Blair was going to give us a vote about this constitutional treaty but then the French and the Dutch uh, voted it down. And obviously we didn't get that. Now then, lots of people got the opportunity to vote or going to have the opportunity to vote. The project, that particular constitutional treaty died and it came back a couple of years later as the Lisbon Treaty in which only the Irish got to vote, and they voted it down, and then got a chance to vote again to get uh, to uh, an agreement. Now, you can't tell people, you, you can't tell people that they have a voice and a vote. Give them a voice and a vote, and then say, we ignore that. Because I don't think that's democratic either. Regardless of what you might think of the result, the process matters. Okay, uh... Yeah, just briefly, I studied direct democracy quite a lot, and uh, one, there are two cardinals, so you know, in, direct democracy is an institution, and it can be designed better or worse like any institution, and the two cardinal sins of direct democracy are making it um, ad hoc, in other words, allowing the government to propose it at its will, and um, you know, referendums are supposed to be a tool of opposition from the people against the government. They're not a tool in the hands of the government. And the second cardinal sin is to make it non-binding. And um, this has led to, I mean, the cases that have committed these two cardinal sins have almost created civil war in Belgium in 1950, for example. Most of the examples that we're aware of of bad referendums take the form that they've taken in the British referendum. Um, but that being said, I think Simon's uh, quite right that you, once you tell people that, going, that their vote is going to count, you can't then renege on it. I mean, this is, you can only imagine what kind of protest and civil strife that this could, that this could cause. And not okay, Norman, okay, do you have anything on that? Well, the, the, uh, the government is preparing its claims to prepare for Brexit, so the only thing that could happen is that officially it will be Brexit eventually when they trigger the article to start it. It may well be that in the meantime all kinds of subtle negotiations take place which modify the whole thing in various ways. So that's something we should all have to watch. So I don't think there'll be an outright repudiation of Brexit because as has been said, you can't do that. But all kinds of subtle things will happen. Just one point on NATO, if I can get my word in. I'm not suggesting we leave NATO, but we should certainly discuss NATO policy. And when NATO decides to shift its main policy from being a defensive organisation uh, purely to react to a possible attack, which is what it was designed for, to uh, an aggressive kind of organisation, uh, putting rockets right up to the border of Russia and surrounding it, then I think that's something that should be discussed and hasn't been discussed, and that's something that you would expect political parties to take far more interest in.
Okay, I'm interested in questions from the younger members of the audience who are going to be most impacted by this. Do we have a, a question for the young? Yes, gentlemen, you can um, thank you very much. My question is throughout the, in the run-up to the referendum, we heard so many facts and figures from both the Remain and the Leave camps, um, suggesting how much it costs every day, every month, or every year to be a member of the European Union, how much we're losing, how much we're gaining. The question is, now that we're voted to leave, what's it going to cost us? We have to create new environmental laws and commissions and reports and all these new organisations. And we know that it's going to cost however many billion a year to stay within the European Union, but now how much are we going to lose by leaving the European Union <coughs> in government spending? As far as I know, the total figure was 350 billion. Uh, whatever it was that we actually uh, export to the EU but a large amount of that comes back in the form of other reliefs there is still a net or has been a net financial <coughs> contribution from this country to the EU so by leaving it we have got several tens of billions of pounds available to spend and we should spend it for example on promoting all the science Cooperation is an obvious example. European Science Week cooperated in that. This will cost a lot of money. Uh, came from the EU or our contribution to the EU. Now we've got to make it voluntarily, but we can afford to do that. So I would suggest one way of using the money we are saving is by joining in to those European projects with which we wholly agree uh, on a voluntary basis. You don't all have to answer this, but if you want to. The simple answer, well, it is a simple answer, is we don't know. Uh, we don't know how much it will cost to leave because we don't know what kind of leaving we're doing. Uh, we don't know what uh, costs are involved because the scope of it uh, is going to be very unclear. Uh, partly that's about the contribution we make to the budget, but actually, much more important will be the wider economic costs uh, of transitioning to a new arrangement with uh, trade with the European Union, which will have uh, vastly bigger consequences financially than anything that might be related to the, the narrow cost. Uh, the second point is just to take a point that, that Norm's made, which is we haven't left yet. We're still members. Technically, nothing, absolutely nothing has changed between now and the 22nd of June. We haven't formally started exit negotiations, we certainly haven't left the system. So when Norman talks about the money that we uh, are saving, we are not saving that. We might one day save that, but again, that will entirely depend on what we do. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Craig, first of all, Professor Joseph. There was a noise from your university, was mentioned, and I didn't catch which university there. Uh, university of Oxford. Where? Oxford. Oxford, okay. Um, some academics said the biggest problem of Europe is that England didn't invent it. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. 
Part of the problems that Europe has is that the Gaul kicked us in the teeth a few times in revenge for what treatment he'd received during the war from Roosevelt and Churchill and kept Britain out when Britain was trying to get in, first of all. Uh, I'm of an age, I was five years old when German bombers came over Glasgow. I remember the windows were smashing everything. We've avoided Europe. used to be in the habit of having wee wars now and again between countries. And the only time that's happened recently is when Tito died and Yugoslavia broke up. We've had mainly peace in Europe. And I think that's worth fighting to keep. I see the European community as a marriage, not a modern marriage. Where you went to see if you like it for two or three years. <laughs> I, think, I think we've got to look on this as 70 years as a short time in this marriage. There's a load of problems now, there's a load of problems to come. I think Theresa May will dilly dally and manage to find a way to avoid Brexit, and then Scotland won't need to face another referendum. I'll leave it there. several of the other comments that we've had so far in this, which is about trust. One of the real problems that we have today is that we don't trust politicians. We don't trust the media. We don't trust 
experts, but you know, we're all Michael Gove. You um, used to be Michael Gove. We don't trust experts. We don't need experts. People who uh, somehow know more than we do, and you know, we give them uh, license to go and make decisions for us. Now, I understand that scepticism. I feel that scepticism when I see the decisions that are made. When I see what's happened in uh, the four weeks since the referendum vote, where I have been scandalised by the lack of preparation on all sides for this result. That literally nobody in this city seems to know what to do or how to do it. Now, that is a terrible failure of the political system. But does it mean that we should stop trying? You know, if we think about the, the classic Labour critique uh, of British politics, it was precisely because the system didn't work that Labour mobilised, that took the parliamentary route to action, to fighting to change the system. Now, Labour, as you have eloquently put it, has not always achieved its goals or followed through on it, but it has tried. Now, for all the failings of the democratic system, I don't want any of the alternative systems where we just throw our hands up and say, well, I'm not taking part. I don't care for an anarchy or a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime or even uh, an absolute monarchy. I like having a voice. I like having a vote. I've never, ever in my entire life, successfully managed to elect an MP in a constituency I was living in. I've always been on the outside. That doesn't mean that I reject Westminster. It means I'm passionately in favour of uh, electoral reform, which was another uh, wonderful referendum uh, that we had a few years ago. So our frustration should move us towards action, not to rejection.
Um, so uh, over time, the UK will be able to build up its capacity, but that's a, a medium-term process at best. Um, so the, the UK will have to make some choices about where it focuses its energies uh, as it progresses. Can, can I, that before I bring all that in, can I ask uh, the Brexiteers in the room, do you worry about uh, the onset of a recession because of what you, you've actually done to this country? I mean, we've just gone through just about a, another recession. This almost certainly is going to trigger a downturn in our GDP, if you consider that significant. What happens, I'm speaking to Norman particularly now, do you worry about another big recession driving this country down the economic ladder? Okay. Um, I, I, I don't uh, worry about that because George Osborne planned certain austerity measures which may well have caused a recession, but he has been demoted to the back benches and the new policy is far more readily apparently going to be to spend money and therefore keep, boost the economy. And don't forget there's something called um, quali qualitative, quantitative easing, which is a polite way of saying print money. And you do it electronically. So it's a another deal in yeah. So if we, if we could just do, go in for a bit of quantitative easing, we did it to the extent of billions of pounds a few years back to bail out the banks. In other words, private banks were going to go bankrupt in 28. And to save the system, the taxpayer, us, printed billions of pounds and gave it to the banks to stop them going bust, which would wreck the capitalist system. So there you have a Conservative government, or initially a Labour government, then a Conservative government, doing all this thing without our realising it. Now the point is a little bit of that, which uh, Jeremy Corbyn calls public qualitative easing, quantitative easing. In other words, for public, <coughs> for building, for investing money into public uh, projects might stop any potential recession. So that's what could happen and may happen anyway under the new uh, May government. So I don't fear recession. Okay, thank you. Uh, Martin, I'm Barbara. <coughs> Right. In 1975, Harold Wilson has the official brochure for the referendum published at the taxpayer's expense on in favour of Remain. This time around, David Cameron did exactly the same thing. Both times I thought it was very unfair. But then the campaigners on the opposite side all brought out innumerable brochures, um, though it had to be at their own expense, I suppose. But I assiduously read them all. At the end of it, I, was, I, I realized that I still didn't have the, um, the wherewithal, really, to come to an important decision, but on balance, I felt exactly the same as Jeremy Corbyn. That is, two thirds in favour of Remain, one third in favour of Brexit. So eventually, I voted for Remain. 
Um, but I'm in, against the whole referendum system, which means um, dictatorship by the majority, which is of varying degrees of ignorance. <laughs> Parliamentary democracy is not perfect, of course, but at least our representatives had more time and ability to look into the salient issues. And I think that is a better system. Just quickly, in 1973 we had a referendum and we voted to join the common market just to trade with six countries. Not all this complex, the European Union hoo-ha that we're having at the moment. We want to trade with people and visit each other, but remain independent. Okay? Finished.
It's what the money people want that matters. As Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. That should be repeated daily, every, every hour of the, of the week. And um, the idea that what we want actually matters. I mean, they tried this in Greece, and they got punished for it. We voted the wrong way. We get punished for it. We don't, you know, we, we don't have any power. They talk about people in politics having power. They don't have power. It's money that has power. Okay, thank you very much. Is there anything you want to say, read those comments? Just, just on that last point, I agree that the structure of power in the modern world is not equal or fair. But again, is that a reason to stop trying to change the way that we run our affairs? But, you know, one of the reasons why money markets are so powerful is that they operate on a global scale. That they can mobilize global financial resources in a way that governments can't. Now, one response is your response, which is to say that, you know, they are in control. The other is to say, well, then we need to think about effective ways that we can create global political responses. Now, uh, there are lots of different ways you can do that uh, through cooperation between governments, between creating stronger international institutions. That's been tried and never will happen because the very thing we also agree in this statement is a very thing that will make sure never happens. So therefore you understand this in a sense because we've been trying that for since the dawn not dawn time, but since the dawn of the globalization. But then is the solution to stop trying? We've been saying my solution is that we don't call what we do a democracy to begin with yeah. and then build for a real democracy that we define which actually does enable people to have a view and the people with money to have only one vote and not find millions of votes which is what currently happens with the political parliament act parliament which is, which is designed to do and so you're agreeing with the system as a common democracy but it's not so if you want to change First step is stop calling it democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first step. They control our murder. That's the second step. <coughs> okay. Anyone have a comment on that? Okay, I'm looking for uh, uh, non-chess members. I'll come to you later. Don't worry about it eventually. Don't worry. Hello. Um, nobody's mentioning immigration here. I know yeah. I arrived late. But really, it was the main reason why people voted out. Yes. Is Britain a racist country now officially or not? I am Spanish, and I think it's a little bit racist. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's racist. Okay. Any comment on that? Yes. Yes, that's Jason. Yeah, I, I don't think it, it was necessarily immigration being the reason. I mean, it's, Immigration was potentially used as a scapegoat for other reasons. I mean, people have problems, they're feeling left behind by society, like I mentioned. And, you know, what, what's the reason for this? Well, the elites have sold us down the river. That's one narrative. And then the other complementary one is that, well, also, there's just too many people here, so if we can just reduce those numbers. So, so I think it's, it, it's, a, it's more a rhetorical gambit than anything else. I don't, I don't think it has a reveal of the British people as racist or for those who voted in that way, maybe 
it has five or ten percent or something like that. They harbor these kind of ideas, but for most people, um, I think they just mostly falsely see immigration as a threat to their livelihood. They see it as a competition for resources, and it's not that they don't want these other people to have resources, but they don't want them taking those resources away from them. So, um, I think you know if you. If you, if you improve um, social welfare in the UK, if you improve um, the quality and standard of living of those who are worse off, no, nobody's gonna, during times of, of, um, of prosperity, nobody really cares too much about immigration. It's like, I'm doing well, this guy who's a migrant is doing well, that's mostly fine, people are okay. It's only when people are in tough times that migration seems to become a problem. David Cameron actually won the last election by frightening everybody that the Scots, Nicholas Sturgeon, was going to join up with Labour. He turned that fear into the electorate. And that's how he got his majority at the election. Nicholas Sturgeon was the most dangerous woman in Britain because she was going to join up the Labour Party. Wanted to leave was about population. This small island is overcrowded. We can't afford to feed ourselves. We haven't enough schools. We, we, we can't build more housing without ruining the land. Everything. Uh, uh, it, it, I just hope that coming out of the Brexit, we'll get some sense on this. However, we have on the other side the island. Oh, there are too many people and there is no enough money for everybody. So, what are we here? Are we rich or are we poor? Let me just make a couple of comments. Even if it's only a small number of people who are racist, uh, who uh, were there in the, the LIFO. I think the bigger issue is that it has made racist uh, comments more acceptable. It's changed the parameters of public debate, and I think that's a big issue. <laughs> that, you know, I, my mother is French, uh, I have a lot of uh, European colleagues. We don't feel that the UK is as friendly as it was uh, a month ago. Now, that's one issue. On the other issue about the UK being too full, about overpopulation, about insufficient provision of public resources, that is a problem of British government and a failure of British government to provide for the population, whatever the size of the population. That the issues that we've had for as long as we can think about, about provision of appropriate levels of public uh, services, go much longer back than the current wave of immigration we've had over the past decade, particularly since the enlargement of Central Eastern Europe. So the failure to provide sufficient public housing has been an issue ever since the 1980s, and indeed before then. Now that's not about immigration, that is about a failure of public British provision. And that's going to be true whether or not we have free movement, whether we have unrestricted immigration from the EU. So, yes, 
we can say, and clearly you feel that that's caused by overpopulation. The issue, if there, well, no, there is an issue about free movement, which is that because migration from the EU is not restricted, it becomes harder for public authorities to plan for having enough schools, having enough hospitals. But it's not the only reason. And even when migration flows were much smaller, public authorities weren't providing those things. So we need to make sure that we don't throw our babies with bathwaters on this one and say that if we just control our borders, control our immigration, that that solves everything, because that's clearly not the case. Okay, the gentleman at the back, yes, stand up and shout. Hi, I'm Carol Shout. And, and I was really interested by the lady who mentioned the worry about this country filling up, there being a lot of people down there. And it's a very legitimate worry, actually. And I think it was at the core of uh, linked with immigration, at the core of the vote, this idea of this country being a fixed vessel, which just fills up and uses up resources, leaving less for everybody else. It just, in my personal view, and I'm not an economist, it's not how an economy works. Uh, when, in terms of population density, this country isn't anywhere near the top in the world in terms of uh, how many people there are. There's no reason to say, let's take London, which has 7, 8 million. Let's double it. Let's say 15 million. Would that be too much? Put it another way around. Let's say take New York, which has, say, 12 million. Would it be better off with 6 million? Right? Yeah. The idea that somehow, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a point of view. The idea that somehow this is a fixed vessel, rather than seeing that it is a fixed vessel, the idea is that these people coming in are economic actors. They increase wealth, they create new businesses, they develop the wealth, and they pay the pensions of people. Generations, my generation, and the younger people coming along, they will be paying the pension for years to come. So it is a question of bringing people in, not regarding immigration as a negative entity, but seeing it as something which builds the country, brings in wealth, and allows future generations to survive. That's my personal view. I just think that the way it's been presented has been a very negative view of people coming into this country. The 1975 referendum fell during my time at university 40 years ago. And I remember my European politics lecturer then saying that not far below the supposedly measured arguments about against being Britain being in the European Union was a great deal of xenophobia, or if you want an even nastier word, racism. We want no to do with our nasty frogs and crabs and moths and spicks. And I have a nasty feeling that a great deal of that is still around today. I sometimes despair of British people's appalling ignorance about the true nature of pan-European institutions. Anything pan-European that the British disapproved of tended to be blamed on the European Union when it had nothing to do with it. The decision a few months ago that uh, employers could be employees' private emails, for instance, had people jumping up and down saying the European Union are again interfering in, in, in our affairs. Well, first, it wasn't mandatory. 
And secondly, it was a decision of the European Court of Human Rights, which has no connection whatsoever with the European Union. And again and again, I always visited the uh, European Union, the European community that was their office in Britain. They have five Euro myths about uh, regulations on the curvature of bananas, which are either false or true but misleading. Ho, ho, those daft European Union bureaucrats have classified carrots as fruit. Well, yes, they do. And for very good reasons. Many people in the European Union make carrot jam. And classifying carrots as fruit made it easier for them. They were recognising the diversity of Europe, not imposing uh, a uniform law on everybody. And perhaps uh, I should have said at the beginning, and I'll say at the end, that's how I voted to remain. And I think we will bitterly regret uh, leaving if indeed we do. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. I mean, uh, one of the big problems that the EU has to contend with is how to connect itself to the people so those kind of claims can be bypassed, so it actually has a voice in the public sphere to explain itself and counter these kind of uh, false claims, misleading claims. Um, and I think one change that's going to happen in the EU over the next years is that if it wants to uh, hold together, especially if it wants to integrate more on monetary union, with that it's going to need to be an increase in democratic credentials and there's going to need to be some kind of greater connection with, uh, with the people. I don't think it's sustainable in, in any other way. So uh, maybe it will become more democratic, but uh, not with the UK in it, it looks like. Uh, this is really against you, Norman, and your attitude. So well, the, uh, I think a few years ago in the EU made a rule that the working week could not be more than 48 hours. This was an EU regulation. And our then Labour Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, argued, oh, it can be more than 48 hours by agreement between the employer and the employee, if he agrees to work, if the employee agrees to work more than 48 hours, uh, because the employer says, well, I want you to work an extra six hours next week, then will you do it? Uh, then that's okay. Well, I mean, whether or not, let's not get into that particular issue, the rights and wrongs, but I think it does show but uh, in my opinion, it shows that there are EU regulations, some of them may be good, some of them may be not so good, but if we're out of the EU, we have the right to adopt as UK legislation any such rule that we wish to, or modify it in any way we wish. So I, my attitude to this is, if there were sensible EU regulations that carrots are a fruit, nothing to stop us calling it a fruit as well, if we choose to do so, even if we're out of the EU. On that last point, it depends whether we want to have continued access to the single market after we leave the EU. But if we want to maintain free access to the single market, then one of the things that we would need to do is be compliant with existing regulation. Now, we do that already because we are members, but in the future, if we wanted to maintain free access for goods and services, then we have to carry on accepting the rules that have been made. And that's one of the downsides, I think, it's the point that I started off the Q&A with, which is that now, 
when the EU makes further decisions about things, the UK won't have a seat at the table, it won't have any voice, or it might have a voice, it can be consulted, but uh, consulted in the same way that Norway has been consulted, which is to say that they say, thank you very much for your comments, we're going to carry on with our discussions uh, as we, uh, we're going to anyway. So, yes, leaving does provide a degree of flexibility, of independence, and depending on how you negotiate the terms, that might mean more areas where the UK can make its own choices. But again, there are quid pro quos in all of this, that if we want to maintain uh, trading access, which a lot of people seem to want to, to do, then that does come with certain uh, acceptance of restrictions on what we want. So we do need to keep that in mind, that you know, there's not uh, some great nirvana of uh, leaving the EU. It's not that everything's going to be milk and honey. <clears throat> It's also clear that it's not the end of the world. It's not that this is the collapse of Western civilization. It's somewhere in between. And again, what matters is, do we know what we want? Because if we don't know what we want, how are we going to fight for it? Okay, maybe if younger people got any questions, because I, I can see right now. Yeah, I know. I should come back. Um, it was just a, to build on how do we know what we want, um, and it's sort of an interesting question that we've been discussing um, amongst ourselves, and uh, it's more, well, how do we impact on that and define that based on the vote being very divisive, politics being based on division, um, how do we clearly define what that is when it is, I mean, the majority was about immigration, say or not, and it's going to be easier for future governments to blame it on immigration in the future and to, in order to get the vote. So I'm just looking about how we might better define what, uh, what we want and what is actually the means of doing that. Thank you. It's the logical question uh, that I was asked at breakfast this morning as well when I told my wife what I was going to be saying. How do we actually articulate what we want? But partly, it's by starting off by reaching some kind of view about what we want, meetings like this, discussions, debates, going through. And then it's about using the different avenues that are available. So you've had uh, the petition route to Parliament, which isn't, I don't see, a viable route because you will never get enough people signing a petition that is uh, defined enough to get to uh, to actually producing a second vote, for example, which I think is probably the only option on the petition. It's also about uh, engaging with political parties. It's about engaging in uh, the media, in other areas of political debate, making voice heard, making uh, views known. Uh, again, it's, you know, it's the full range of political action that, that are there, and you know, finding different paths to doing that, and doing it in lots of different ways so that it's not avoidable, I think is, you know, that there needs to be a breadth to it as well as uh, a depth. I think, I just, I think that's the struggle to speak with. The struggle we're finding is that those avenues don't appear to, I don't, I don't think by doing that I'll have an impact, and it's trying to work out how I can have that impact. So I can actually say, I, I did something and that happened. Whereas at the moment, it gets lost. So yes, lots of action gets lost. 
But let me, you know, I've worked on Euroscepticism for 20 years now. And back then, it was an interesting little academic backwater. Nobody was ever interested in my work, and actually that was fine because it meant I had more time at conferences to go and see the local architecture. <laughs> Eurosceptics in this country have been incredibly persistent. They have suffered endless failure. Endless failure. So they've seen setback after setback after setback. But there is a group of people who have been determined because they believe it's right that they should pursue their line of activity and they went through a lot of difficult times they eventually found a way that they could get their views heard and they've achieved a very big success now if you can't take anything else from Euroscepticism you can take that that persistence has a value it might take a very long time Indeed, but at some point, your day comes. Because if you find the right way, you find the chink in the armor, which frankly in this case is quite a large chink, uh, then you can actually go the long way. So I think you know, throwing your hands up at this point and saying, I don't seem to, you know, writing my letter to the paper or signing a petition doesn't seem to have worked, I'm giving up, is not going to be the attitude that will work here. So it has to be long term. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Just um, on that, I mean, I, I think um, one thing that can be very frustrating is, is this long-term strategy as well, and, and the absence of a, a focal point to get people talking about it at the same time. And just again talking about these proposals, and people talk about mini corporates, which is this idea where you randomly select a couple of hundred citizens uh, according to you know socio-economic factors, you know, make sure there's an even representation of people in the UK, get them over the course of a couple of weeks to discuss issues, have evidence presented to them, and tr through various forms, through um, over the course of a couple of weeks, come up with some kind of proposal. A proposal that is supposed to be representative of the people that if we were all imagined to be put in good kind of deliberative circumstances, what would we think of together? And this group of people is supposed to kind of represent that. And then that can serve as a focus for a wider group. So that's just one kind of institutional proposal. Like we're not very imaginative when it, when it comes to this. Like uh, Simon said, I think it's you know, the, the Boris versus Dave race is what we kind of got. So some kind of institutional um, focus point that is about debate and, and could focus other forces, I think, is, would, would help in these kind of situations. Okay, thank you. John? Um, yeah, several points there isn't for general discussion, I'll be quick. Firstly, I, I shared Norman's anxiety about TTIP, but I understand the current situation is there's a huge opposition to it in Europe, and Holland has virtually vetoed it, and there's very solid opposition in the Netherlands, that's full of Eurosceptics, and there's also a great deal of dislike for Europe's foreign policy in places like Ukraine, I think they want to, and uh, I mean, how, how it, uh, and there may be a rejection of American pressure on Europe to do things like impose sanctions against Russia, but um, the other thing that hasn't really come up is, there's two things here, I wonder how, you may notice that the panel may, may be quite well up on this, how uh, leaving may 
uh, affect the very close technological cooperation between companies in that are the only industries we have any bloody good on world scale are probably aerospace and uh, we have immensely close relationships with say France, Airbus and with Germany, people like MTU and the numerous other firms there, how will it affect this? But the final question is who bought the Brexit vote and why? Where did the money come from to subsidise an immense blast of propaganda uh, to get people to leave the EU? And I suspect there, it hasn't come up in the discussion yet, that there are people who like the idea of a free-for-all casino in, in, in uh, certain hedge fund managers can make money regardless of the state of the real economy simply does not concern jobs, technology, no concern whatsoever, it's only money. And I think they did provide a lot of the finance for the Brexit programme, which must be very heavily financed. Um, and obviously, the first and second, uh, lastly, the suggestion was made by the European Commission that they might try to limit uh, things like bankers' bonuses. And that sort of set the alarm bells ringing in certain quarters in the city. Not all the city. The city that's concerned with the real economy, the Bank of England, not them, but there are plenty of others who wanted a complete free-for-all and did not want the EU to do anything about tax havens. It's only a very big multinational institution that can do anything about tax havens. So there's a few things to chew on okay. and come up with an discussion. Okay, there's a bit of meat there, so I'll um, yeah. take it back to the panel before I go to you. All right, on technical cooperation, industrial cooperation. Yes, one of the consequences of creating a single market is that you integrate national economies. So you create supply chains yeah. uh, across national borders. You create uh, an incentive for cooperation uh, in various ways. So, again, we don't know what the impact will be because we don't know what the future relationship between the UK and the EU will be. But if there are more barriers, then potentially that makes it economically less viable to sustain those supply chains. Uh, it might make it less viable to have the degree of cooperation. However, as you say, the UK does have some very strong industrial sectors. It also has very strong financial and service sectors. Now, the expertise that the UK has, in the medium term at least, still provides a strong incentive for cooperation. But in the longer term, potentially it changes the basic economic calculations uh, that take place. On the question of who bought the leave votes, uh, I'm actually going to go back to the gentleman at the end. You know, if the result had been the other way around, would we have not had the same questions asked about who bought the Remain vote? And both campaigns spent a lot of time questioning the source of funding that the other sides had got. So it's clear that a lot of uh, large financial institutions in the city supported the Remain campaign as well. It's also clear that uh, the Leave campaign did spend more money overall uh, than the Remain campaign. And one of the reasons for that was that uh, organisations such as the Labour Party put very small, didn't use anything like the maximum amount of money that they put forward, uh, they could have used in the campaign because the Labour Party took the view that it wanted to save its money for other things. Now, 
the imbalance of resources is difficult to unpick, but within the terms of the legislation that we had, the uh, remit of the uh, Electoral Commission, both sides acted within that remit. And you know, we have to go back to that uh, government leaflet that came in just before the Perda period that caused a lot of unhappiness uh, at that point. So, yes, we can question who spent the money. Yes, we can question what are the motivations behind people's votes. But that still doesn't change where we are. We still have a vote with a result, with consequences. And I know for a lot of people in this room, that is an unpleasant place to be, an unhappy place to be, but it still is a situation that we have. So we need to think about how we deal with this situation rather than the situation we would rather have had. Yeah, just uh, quickly, I think the only point you didn't uh, deal with is, is the TTIP thing. And yeah, I think you're right, it's, it's probably dead in the water. Um, but then just going back to Malcolm's point earlier, I think it, 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 the fact that TTIP uh, probably won't happen maybe makes it more likely that something similar between the UK and the US will be negotiated. I mean, the UK wants a, a trade, trade deal with the US, so I think being ironically outside the EU, the EU now is something more likely than a TTIP kind of arrangement between the US and, and the UK, so yeah. just to flip that a bit. Yeah. Okay, so just, just a point on publicity. As Barbara Smoker said, um, I think at a cost before this so-called PERD period, the government did supply a letter, a leaflet, booklet to every citizen in the country arguing for Remain. Now, no such document went to every single citizen in the country arguing for Brexit. So I think that, uh, I don't think that Brexit necessarily got the best uh, advantages in terms of, so the fact that it won in spite of that, it shows that um, if it had a got an equivalent explaining it, there could have been a bigger majority for TV. A lot of airtime. Yeah. Okay, so, um, right, my three points. This one first time, I'll probably speak first time. Um, so, politicians, uh, our government, um, they have their views, each party, they want to do what they want to do and they want to stay in power. And um, how I feel, my opinion is, um, in my short political memory, I noticed it with David Cameron, obviously the whole Project Fear thing, um, it seems that they've worked out a way with their PR people, or whatever it is, whatever agency they use, of maximizing a percentage of staying in. And fear is more powerful than hope, so they're using fear. And um, they're using fear to stay in. Um, and it goes deeper than just standing on a platform and scaring people nowadays. It's about collecting data, social media, finding out, like, people in them, they have this, this horrible bit in them which is worried about foreigners, and they figured that out. So we got the project fear, that works. Now, my worry is with Brexit. Um, the, okay, my question to the panel, has Brexit legitimised the use of not only fear, but xenophobia in a campaign to retain power? And if it has, how do we stop that? <laughs> uh, 
short answer to that. I don't think it. Okay, I don't. To answer your question, I don't think Brexit legitimises any form of racism or xenophobia. Absolutely not. And as I tried to say in my original talk, we are free to admit people from all over the world, including Spain and countries of Europe, as we wish. So I don't think there's any. The fact that some racists, if they exist, may have voted for Brexit is no reason for. Uh, for Brexit itself, for the politicians to follow that in any way of justifying. Yeah, and just, just to echo something that was said earlier, I think I think it's just emboldens a certain small number of people. And, um, you know, unfortunately, like so, some of the elites, uh, someone like Nigel Farage, I mean, hasn't directly said very racist things, maybe on one or two occasions, but kind of has, has just not enough to kind of skirt those lines and make it more permissible for some for people to then go a bit further. Mm -hmm. So I think the way in which the referendum campaign has been run has definitely harmed political culture in the UK and set precedents for future campaigns. And I would be worried about that myself as well. Um, okay. Uh, questions? I mean, um, Okay, yeah, gentlemen, now. Sorry, I'm Yes, um, I voted Brexit, so I'm not in favour of a super state, unelected, appointed people telling us what to do. I, I don't know why we can't self govern. Um, but my main issue now we've got unelected Prime Minister. I would like to see a general election within four months. Where's the camera? Are we going to be on news at yes. <laughs> I think that most of the trouble in the world is caused by religion and nationalism. And I'm with Thomas Paine, who said, the world is my country. I think anything that breaks down barriers between nations is a good thing. Also, I think it's so much easier when you want to go abroad, or go to the continent, you load up with the Euros, you can go to all those countries with the Schengen Agreement allows you to do. And I think that that is a good thing and it saves such a lot of problem. And also a lot of those countries, nearly all of them except Fred, the French, speak English. <laughs> Brexiteers amongst you concern yourselves about the total political meltdown, I believe, across the political spectrum that has occurred primarily as a result of the Brexit vote. Do you worry about that? Somebody has to pick up the pieces. 
And again, actually, to go back to the comment on the other side of the room, this is exactly the point where political action is likely to be more effective. Because there is a wreckage, there isn't a plan, there isn't uh, a way forward that people agree on. We have opportunities, there are a lot more opportunities now than there have been for a very long time to shape the debate. And again, you know, maybe we, you know, to go back to this gentleman's comments about having an unelected Prime Minister, you know, the irony of a Leave campaign that campaigned on the slogan of vote Leave, take control. I don't actually know how many people actually got to choose Theresa May as Prime Minister. Actually, I do. No one. She was literally the last candidate who was left. And so there was no election, there was no selection, there was no approval. So, is that taking control? No, not really. So again, there are opportunities out there, but it's incumbent on you and me and all of us to take those opportunities. Because if we don't, somebody else will. Okay, this gentleman here has had his hand up for 150 hours. Uh, I have to speak from my own point of view. I have to quote a character from the film Comedy to Win, and that is, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> In other words, uh, I'll tell you why, because we are a very adaptable species. Our history is that. In newly conditioned environment, situation we find ourselves in, we survive and thrive, and we'll do the same now that we're out. In Iraq, we jumped in the water, let's start swimming. <laughs> in Africa, people might be dying of AIDS, they're not dying of tariffs. Um, yeah, we, we've been to the moon and back. We, we've uh, treated probably every disease we've encountered. Um, let's get the situation in perspective. It's not life threatening. We're wasting all our time and energies chewing the cud over all this. You know, we, we, it's over. Let's get on with it. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, final question, uh, comment. So as you can probably tell, I'm American. And one of my questions is, when you talk about uh, being self-controlled, getting to make your own decisions, um, when the Brexiters talk about not letting EU decide, getting making your decisions about regulations, for example, we're self-governed and it has solved none of those problems. You still, it's not like everyone here agrees on regulation and everyone agrees that there's one system that is the best way to regulate and everyone agrees on immigration and there's an easy boogeyman. We still have the same fundamental problems whether you're in the EU or you're out of the EU that there is a disconnect between the government and the people, that there's a disproportionate influence of international financial sectors. And at the end of the day, just saying, well, if we rule ourselves, it'll all go away. I, mean, we're, I think we're a living example that that is not the case at all. Um, so I'm just interested to hear what it is that doing it yourself really solves. Excellent. Uh, excellent. Final question. You're quite right. 
there just because we're an independent country that there can still be great disagreements within it. But at least we don't have to persuade 27 other countries to agree with us before we change a piece of legislation. So it might be a bit easier. And the other thing is we don't have a presidential system in this country. The Prime Minister has never been elected by the public. As long as they've got the majority of the House of Commons behind them, that's all that's necessary. And obviously, Theresa May was thought to have a majority. She does have, and that's all that's necessary in our constitutional system. Yeah, final comment, uh, Joseph. Uh, yeah, well, very good. Uh, well, well summed up. I think these uh, problems that people thought maybe were going to be solved uh, are not going to be solved. And, uh, well, actually, there's, there's a survey done recently showing, uh, trying to ask, like, did people think that Brexit was going to solve their problems. And some people thought, yeah, maybe a little bit, but there was a lot of people and um, felt no, and I think we're probably just going to go along the same way. But I, I think what was appealed to was just um, this abstract idea of control and power, and it's something that is used in authoritarian regimes a lot. And um, I don't know if I'm saying close comparisons here. But um, yeah, I think it's just this abstract idea that people find very appealing. Doesn't have great substance. Um, again, I, I think the the issue is, you know, you know what does self-control mean uh, is something that's there to be defined. And again, it's the, the point I started off with, and I'll come back to again and again, is that we have to decide what we want, and we have to decide how we're going to try and get what we want. And you know, this is bigger than the European Union. This is about all of our social values, what we want as a community. Now, there's no one right answer in this. There are different points of view, and it's only going to be by exchanging points of view, by talking with people who we disagree with, as much as talking with people we agree with, that we're going to find some kind of compromise and some kind of consensus about how we advance on this. And I think that's you know the, going to be the very worst thing that could come out of all of this is if at the end we trust each other a bit less or a lot less, if we don't talk to each other as much as we used to, then uh, the problems that we think we have in the world today are going to look very small by comparison. So I think we need to keep on talking. I think we need to keep on working towards uh, what we want, uh, and then maybe we'll get a bit closer to it. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Can I thank uh, the panel for coming along?